Welcome to Discover Library and Archives Canada, your history, your documentary heritage. I'm your host, Angèle Alain. Join us as we showcase treasures from our vaults, guide you through our many services, and introduce you to the people who acquire, safeguard, and make known Canada's documentary heritage. Have you ever wondered about the unknown people in your old family photographs? Often you can find out who they are pretty easily. But what if an entire community of people was photographed and never identified? This is what happened in Canada's north in the last century. Today we'll introduce you to Project Naming, a community engagement and photo identification project launched by Library and Archives Canada in 2004. Today we're talking to project manager Beth Greenhorn. She has been coordinating this ongoing initiative, leading the team behind project naming, and collaborating closely with its various partners. Beth will talk to us about the project, its plans for expansion, and how we Canadians can get involved. Hi Beth, thanks so much for being here. How about you tell us a bit about how project naming started? Project naming began uh, in the year 2001, and it's really uh, the conception of Murray Angus, who was an instructor at Nunavut Sivaniksavut Training Program. That's a Nunavut-based college in Ottawa. And for the last uh, 20 years or so, Murray and other instructors from the college have been bringing by uh, or their students to Library and Archives Canada to do research on our card, card catalogs on, um, in our reference area to look for photographs of um, their community and um, sometimes uh, family pictures that they could take home to their families at Christmas time. Even before project naming started. Mm -hmm. The project um, was proposed by Murray largely because uh, most of the photographs of Inuit in our collection were never identified. And, and a lot of these photographs date from the early 1900s to the 1920s and even as late as the 1960s and 70s. And really this was a way, uh, as Murray sought, to reunite and um, bring together two um, culture or two generations within uh, Inuit communities. A large majority of Inuit youth today do not speak Inuktitut, which is the first language of Inuit, whereas uh, the older generation don't speak English. And so there really has been this generational gap. Another uh, reason for uh, suggesting this project as well is that uh, besides the loss of language, many youth don't uh, have a, a knowledge or understanding of their past, that it's not taught in their curriculum. And by looking at these historical photographs, not only are the younger generation able to talk um, to the older generation, it also is a way for uh, younger generations of Inuit to learn about their past. And um, so really it, it it's, has been a, a way to, um, to bridge together these two generations. Here's Frank Tester from the University of British Columbia speaking to us about how relevant archives and historical documents can be in our everyday life. You have to understand that this is a generation of young people that don't know their own history. Um, they don't know what happened in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, even in the 70s. Um, the reason they don't know is, of course, they're part of a, and I'm involved in changing this at the moment, and this is another spin-off of the work I've been doing with archival resources here. Uh, I'm an advisor to a committee of the Nunavut Department of Education, which is rewriting the school curriculum, grades 7 to 12. 
And our goal and objective is to make it, quote, Inuit-centered. In other words, uh, the, for example, um, incident in Arbiat, the community where I'm working with these young people, in the winter of 1962-63, where 35% roughly of the community was evacuated to the south as a result of a re-emergence of or outbreak of tuberculosis, is far more important for Inuit young people to know about and understand and appreciate in detail why, how, when, etc., etc., how was it dealt with, what, did, what happened, than the American Revolution. What I'm trying to say is that the school curriculum, which has been adopted from the province of Alberta and that has been used to teach social studies in Nunavut, just doesn't touch on Inuit young people. And it's one of the reasons, certainly not the only one, but it's one of the reasons why Inuit youth drop out. I mean, there's nothing in there that they can relate to. There's nothing in there about them. And making the curriculum Inuit-centered is really, really important. Well, again, the resources of the National uh, Library and Archives of Canada are absolutely essential to, uh, to rewriting that curriculum. It's time to use this wealth of resources, and that's a good example of the practical and very important use of archival materials for educational purpose, which is not just a matter of getting an education. It's a matter of creating something that interests Inuit young people, motivates them, and in turn addresses a whole lot of very, very serious social problems that we have in Nunavut, with the highest rate of suicide for young Inuit men 13 to 25 in the world. Well, this is related to problems associated with of an, what I would call academically an existential nature, problems associated with meaning and purpose, and, and being lost, you know, not knowing who you are, not knowing your own culture, not having an identity, which makes you vulnerable to you know, every cheap message that comes along including, you know, whatever nonsense is broadcast on television or, you know, that you're not good enough looking because you're not using the right shaving lotion or the right, you know, or the dressing in the right clothes. I mean, if you don't have a strong sense of identity, you're vulnerable to all of these other messages. And those messages can be really soul-destroying. So, you know, I'm not, I don't, I'm not stretching it when I say that the resources here the historical record and the importance of introducing that and giving Inuit youth a sense of their identity, their history, where they came from, what their elders went through, who they are, is really important to addressing these kinds of social and psychological problems, these sorts of mental health concerns. So the relevance, I'm interested, you know, like people think archives are just, you know, some dusty places where people store things that might someday be of some use to somebody somewhere. Well, it's time to get over that. I mean, they have real practical application to really important and current social problems. Project naming is almost 10 years old now. Um, can you tell us what has been accomplished in the project since its beginning? The project's really evolved over the last decade. The um or as I mentioned, the project was first conceptualized in 2001. In the winter of 2002, we digitized 500 photographs from the Richard Harrington collection. He was a Toronto-based photographer who made, um, I think, uh, four trips to the Arctic in present-day Nunavut. And this was in the late 1940s, early 1950s. He was a portrait uh, photographer uh, for the most part and the uh, the pictures we have um, in this collection 
were a good starting point. They were taken about, um, you know, 50 years ago. They are close-up shots of individuals, and so the likelihood of people today being able to re remember and recognize the people in the pictures was uh, quite high. And in fact, it was high because 75% of those pictures were identified during the first um, meetings between the youth and um, elders who looked through them. Uh, yeah, that w I would say that's a success. It for was sure. <laughs> totally a success. I think when um, the project was first, uh, well, when the, the project first began, I, I think there was an expectation that people would be able to identify the, um, a number of people in these pictures, but I don't think it was expected that the number would be quite as high as it was. So um, you were saying that 500 were digitized at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Now in 2011, how many photographs do you think have been digitized for project naming? Um, well, it, in fact, I should backtrack. The uh, web exhibition was launched in October 2004, and uh, it features a database. And so what we've been able to accomplish over the last decade has um, been to add to this database. So we started off with the 500 Richard Harrington photos, and today we have approximately 6,000 images that are available to the public. So Library of Canada um, has a much greater photo collection, but we've been able to digitize approximately 60,000, mm -hmm. and 10% of those are of project naming. That's right. Out of those 6,000 photographs from project naming, how many people do you think have been identified? I would say around 1,700 individuals have been identified as a result of this project. Okay, and these Which, people can be in groups or... That's right. And sometimes one person can appear in different photographs. Mm -hmm. And you know to identify that person in more than one photograph. Yeah, as much as possible, we've um, attempted to make cross-links between photographs. Um, whether it's an individual that appears in more than one photo, we'll, when we can, we'll add that um, extra piece of identification, our um, extra link in another field to um, link two photographs together. Or in other cases, members of um, the Inuit community have been able to identify a person but also provide other anecdotal information or family relationships and sometimes um, you know a, a parent might appear in one picture and their child might be in another one or their half-brother or whoever so with uh, those links we rely largely on the knowledge of Inuit to be able to then make these these broader links and then make this um, information accessible. Well, I'm thinking this project probably had a really big impact on the Inuit community. Have you seen any evidence of that yourself? Over the years, I've had a number of conversations and other dialogue with uh, Inuit. Um, some of these have taken place by email, some by telephone conversations, and a number of them have been in person. The response from th these communities has been overwhelmingly positive. Many of the people who are from these uh, Arctic communities have not been aware that we have these photographic collections here. They, the, photo, the photographers who went north, as far as I know, they brought their film back and developed the material back in Ottawa or whatever southern um, city they were living in. So the Inuit never saw those photographs. So no. they saw somebody show up, take a photo, mm -hmm. and then leave. That's right. Or their grandparents or parents saw these people take pictures, but they wouldn't have, they just weren't aware that these pictures were taken. Okay. So by making these pictures accessible of, you know, family members, other ancestors, of friends who are long gone has been, um, or has enabled Inuit to connect 
with these people from their past. So the response in, in when people have been able to reconnect with these images has been really emotional. Here's Curtis Koenig, a member of the Nunasivik Arviet History Project, after discovering a photograph of his grandmother at a recent photo identification session at Library and Archives Canada. Uh, I saw a couple of pictures of my grandma's family and a couple of pictures that of my grandma that I never saw before. That was amazing. I felt excited that I saw my grandma really young. Yeah, it's also, there's also cultural difference here. I mean, we, we have lived with photographs and so many of them for so long that we kind of take them for granted. You know, everybody has their family plastered all over their fridge and that's wonderful and it's important. And you know, you have a picture of your parents sitting on your bureau in your bedroom and, and so forth and so on. The way in which Inuit, especially Inuit elders react to photographs is very different because they themselves don't possess uh, photographs of their grandparents that that in the, that were taken maybe in the 40s or 50s because they didn't have cameras at the time. At least not many of them had cameras. So when an elder um, comes to the Library and Archives of Canada and sees pictures of her or his grandparents or parents, um, all I can say is, this is very simple, but it's very important. In fact, it's in ironic, because a few minutes ago, I asked Martha, you know, how she felt about seeing some of the slides that she was seeing mm -hmm. and pictures of some of her relatives. And she looked at me and she beamed from ear to ear and she says, it makes me feel happy, period. And uh, I think that's easily underrated because given the real problems that exist in Inuit communities at the moment, there are huge problems associated with housing conditions, living conditions, employment. I mean, for in some communities, there's like 60, 70 percent unemployment rate among Inuit young people. There's the suicide problem that I've already mentioned. There are serious mental health, other mental health problems. Um, Making sure that people have experiences and have access to resources which contribute to their mental well-being, which make them feel happy, should not be underestimated or underrated. In this particular context, this is extremely important. So I guess what I'm saying is that you have an awful lot of resources here that are very important to making people feel happy and that should not be underestimated in terms of its importance. In November 2008, I had the opportunity to uh, travel to the community of Rankin Inlet in Nunavut. It's located on the western uh, coast of Hudson Bay. And uh, with the help of several of the community members, we organized two photo identification um, gatherings and sessions. One was um, in the afternoon, it took place at the Adult Learning Centre, and it was with a group of 16 or so elders who were specially invited to that meeting. And then later that evening, a larger community event was held at the hotel, and we broadcast um, notices on the, the local radio station and put up some posters within the, uh, the community and the co-op and, and other public um, places, inviting everyone to come and join us to help identify the people in the pictures. And I have to say, it was one of the most emotional experiences I've experienced. And as I talk about it, I get goosebumps. When I think, um, <laughs> I literally, I get goosebumps. 
But the the uh, the people that attended, um, I think there were probably eighty to ninety individuals. They were young kids. They were middle generation elders who didn't speak any English. I had an awesome woman, Mary Rose, uh, who was the, my interpreter, who worked for. Uh, she recorded the names of individuals, I'd say, for like seven hours that day. Do you have an idea of how many people were identified while you were there? Actually, yeah. Um, that evening when I went back to uh, my bed and breakfast room, I did a count and of the... I brought about uh, 500 pictures with me on that trip, printouts, and there were approximately, I'd say, 225, 230 people that were identified in 130 pictures as a result of those two meetings that afternoon. Uh, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, it was incredible. And what what struck me too was um, particularly at the uh, the gathering that evening at the hotel. There was a lot of laughter. There was animation. Like the the there was a lot of talking, but also crying, but laughing. And it was just it was really just a really emotionally uplifting experience to to see so many people reconnect with these pictures. And each other. Mm-hmm. Beth, I know that you met uh, youth and elders recently in May 2011. Can you tell us about the project they were working on and why they were at Library and Archives Canada? Sure. In September 2009, the Nana Civic Arviat History Project was launched, and Library and Archives Canada was one of the partners with this group. So the folks that came to Ottawa in May 2011 were part of a research team from the community of Arviat in Nunavut. And what uh, I found particularly interesting was the fact that, well, they were doing research on our collections, our photographic collections primarily, and the purpose of their research was to um, create a multimedia, um, uh, I guess a, a multimedia uh, video, and they have a blog and another material that they have online in order to recreate the history of their community partly using archival material from our collection, as well as um, contemporary documents and interviews with elders today to really re-examine and re-present the history of their community from an Inuit point of view. Let's listen to Amy Owengaya from the Ninasivik Arviat Project. I'm Amy Owengayak, and I'm a part of the Ninasivik History Project, and I started about a year ago. I've always wondered about what my family looks like and um, how how important it is to know my family members and it was great to see a photo of him. Um, it's always good to have more respect when we know something about our history. So when I'm finding more about that, I have more respect and uh, more pride about being an Inuk. Uh, so that yeah, so I'm more respectful towards elders than I was before because I didn't know anything about the history. Then, when you know your past, you pretty much know who you really are and where you come from. Maybe you can tell us about the future of the project now and the next steps. Well, up till now, the project and the way that we've been able to gather data has been really a one way form of communication where we've had uh, people contact us with uh, by email or in person or uh, other ways, but they've, they've sent us the information and the names of people in the pictures, which then we've added to the database. And posted online. That's right. 
But um, what's really exciting is in the next number of months, we have plans to utilize uh, new social media, which will um, enable people to directly add names and other information directly online. And um, in addition to this, we're also expanding beyond the territory of Nunavut. And in the past, we focused exclusively on Nunavut because our initial partner was Nunavut Cybernixavut Training Program. And um, who they also worked uh, fairly closely with the government of Nunavut, with the uh, Department of Culture, Language, Elders, and Youth. And in the next stages of the project, we are, well, in fact, we've already digitized uh, material from a collection that reaches into Nunavik, which is in northern Quebec, in the Ungava Bay region, um, also in Iqaluit and uh, Baker Lake, which is in present-day Nunavut, and then also in Northwest Territories in Aklavik. So we have this material that will be launching later in the, um, the autumn of 2011. And with this, we'll have an application where people, as I mentioned, will be able to directly add information to that, and then that will be shared. It will be sort of like a, in Facebook where people can tag pictures, and it, um, and then more pictures can be linked, and people can then be brought together so anyone can come and comment on photographs, name mm-hmm. people, not just the Inuit, but anyone in Canada that would have information about a certain photo, what's happening in the photo, um, the person in the photo, uh, just comment. I guess people will probably start discussions on photos. That's all possible with this? Exactly. And yeah, what is really exciting too is that, um, well, how about, I think this will give us a, a, uh, more of a presence online within the virtual community. Um, and in addition to having Inuit identify and, and name the people in the pictures, we also have a whole community of scholars and other researchers who have been studying and uh, working in the north and really closely with Inuit communities for decades. And they themselves have a whole lot of information and other knowledge that they can share um, and then add to these photos and just make them that much richer for future generations of you know, people that are interested in the North, people who are in the pictures or whoever. So it's it's really is an exciting turn. The way that the project has evolved, it's, it's very exciting. It's a good example of a project which is out there in the community and has real relevance and importance to Inuit in that um, it uh, helps Inuit to get in touch with their history, with their culture, uh, for people to get in touch with their families. Um, their ancestors. Uh, it makes people feel happy. Uh, it's really important that people be named, and that's what project naming is all about. So, you know, and it also means that the archive, in order to do this, has to get out into the community with the pictures and and find elders and others who can identify people. So, this bridges the gap between a very important part of the Canadian community, i.e., Inuit of the uh, of Nunavut and in, in the Eastern Arctic, and and uh, and the National Archives of Canada. What more could you ask for? That's exactly the kind of thing that needs to happen more and more. So, in some ways, project naming is kind of leading the way, I think. Well, there you have it. Project naming is really an example of a successful community engagement project where Library and Archives Canada's collection plays a leading role. Thanks, Beth, for sharing some of your project naming knowledge and experience with us today. Well, thanks. It's been fun chatting. For more information about project naming, visit collectionscanada.gc.ca slash Inuit. 
Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Angèle Alain, and you've been listening to Discover Library and Archives Canada, where Canadian history, literature, and culture await you. A special thanks to our guests today, Beth Greenhorn, Frank Tester, Amy Owen Gayak, and Curtis Kunick. For more information about our podcast, or if you have questions, comments, or suggestions, please visit us at collectionscanada.gc.ca slash podcasts.